Welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks very much for tuning in for the show. We're speaking here on Monday, January 22nd, 2024. And we are digging back into what is happening in state government right now. We are now into budget season in full swing. Governor Kathy Hochul has unveiled her executive budget plan, which really forms a lot of what the state legislature will deal with, although the state assembly and the state Senate will come out with their one house budget plans later in this budget season after holding a whole bunch of hearings on the governor's executive budget and talking over many of their priorities. They are starting to pass legislation in Albany for this session, and the budget will also take up a lot of attention between now and the April start of the new fiscal year. So there is policy to deal with, there is budget to deal with, and of course, where they intersect. The governor, prior to releasing her executive budget, if you've been listening to the show, we got into her state of the state address and agenda where she laid out her policy priorities. And so now the Albany season is off and running, and we are taking another look at what's happening in state government here today, but also what's happening in parts of the city locally, and I'm very pleased to be joined today on the show by Assemblymember Alex Boris, who is a Democrat serving in his first term in the state legislature. He represents New York's 73rd Assembly District, which is in Manhattan and includes all or parts of Murray Hill, Turtle Bay, Sutton Place, Midtown East, Lenox Hill, Carnegie Hill, and a big part of the Upper East Side. Assemblymember Boris, as I said, is in his first term. So just finished his first year in the Assembly last year, now off and running in year two, up for re-election this year with the entirety of the state legislature, not to mention all the U.S. House seats in New York, and of course the presidency and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand on the ballot this year as well. But today we're focused in on what's happening in Albany, in the district, in the city, and I wanted to have Assemblymember Boris on because I'll let him explain a bit of his background, but he has a, a unique background for the state legislature, at least, and is working on some really interesting issues. So we're going to get into a lot of that today in just one second with Assemblymember Alex Boris. Just a reminder that Max Politics is now coming to you from New York Law School, where I'm now the executive editor and program director at the Center for New York City Law. So you should definitely check out events coming up at the Center for New York City Law at New York Law School. We've got some interesting ones on the calendar or that will be added to the calendar soon. And I'm working on adding to that programming as well as what's going to be the next phases of the publications of the center, city law and city land. So a lot more to come here in 2024 from the Center for New York City Law at New York Law School. But we are now bringing you Max Politics from New York Law School and very pleased to be there. Uh, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, probably where you're listening right now. Some really interesting conversations. We've been bouncing back and forth a, a bit, as we do here on the show, between state government and city government issues. This week, along with this conversation with Assemblymember Alex Boris, you will also get a second episode this week. Mayor Adams is delivering his State of the City Address for 2024 on Wednesday, January 24th. So I encourage you to tune in for that if you can. It'll be at 12.30 p.m. He's 
going to be giving it from the Bronx. And I'll have two great guests on to analyze uh, that speech and his agenda and what's going on with the mayor and city politics and government afterwards. So stay tuned for that later in the week. But right now, very pleased to bring Assemblymember Alex Boris onto the show. Assemblymember, how are you? Thank you for joining me. Appreciate you taking the time. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me and congratulations on the new position. I'm excited for a lot of the programming from New York Law. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. And and one of the issues we're going to get into in a moment that you've been talking about is very relevant to uh, the legal profession and the judicial world. We'll get into that in just a second. So we're speaking here on Monday, January 22nd. uh, And part of the reason we timed this episode is because yesterday on January 21st, you gave your state of the district address. So say just a little bit, broadly speaking, we'll get into a whole lot of the specifics, but say a little bit about sort of like what's going on in your district, uh, how the event was, and just a little bit about sort of the broad areas that you're kind of focused on both in district and and broadly speaking uh, here as we get going in this 2024 legislative and budget session in Albany. Well, it was a great event yesterday. Um, we had about 250 people there on a frigid day competing with the NFL playoffs. Um, so it was great to see so much energy. Um, people are concerned about what's going on about the state and the city budget, but they're also seeing the city continue to recover from COVID. And uh, my district's really the economic engine for much of New York. And so we talked about what we can do to continue to grow the economy, to care for those uh, in the district that might be struggling, especially around housing costs. And a number of reforms that we think will make the government more effective and efficient. And so say I alluded to this, but I wanted to give you a chance to to frame it yourself. Um, you're what you must be one of the youngest members of the New York State Legislature, but uh, even beyond that, you have a bit of a unique background. So say a little bit about your background and the and the sort of experience and perspective you bring to the legislature that's that's uh, either fully unique or or mostly uh you know or or one of few with with a certain perspective that you bring yeah i'm actually the first democrat elected in new york state at any level state legislature or otherwise uh, with a degree in computer science i have a master's degree uh specifically in machine learning uh, which is very relevant as we discuss more and more AI. But I do have to say Democrat, because actually the first person in New York State elected with a degree in computer science is Ed Ra, my fellow assembly member um, who and, and fellow co-chair of the Future Caucus uh, and my grandmother's representative. So I always have to be nice to him. And so say a little bit, just broadly speaking, about sort of what that perspective means. Uh, how, how is it that, you know, a, A, you just won election to this position, and this was sort of part of your pitch to voters, was this background and this perspective. Say a little bit about how you bring a computer science, a sort of data engineering, government technologist perspective to government work. What I said during the campaign, and we'll say now, is I don't think every legislator should have a background in computer science, but I think at least one of us should. Um, These are issues that are more and more affecting everyone's daily life. Uh, And while much of that legislation and regulation will and should happen at the federal level, uh, there's many places where it intersects with state or local policy. And so having a perspective of someone on the inside that knows how these systems work and also knows how the businesses that are creating many of these systems, what their incentives are, what it's like on the inside, because I worked at AI companies before as well, um, that will allow us to craft better legislation. You know, I think everyone has a role in where technology is going and in how we should regulate AI, but sometimes really good intentions get bogged down by 
writing laws that don't interact with systems or have unexpected uh, consequences or outcomes. And so me being able to say, hey, I see where you're going with this. Why don't we craft it this way? Because it'll really work better with how the tech is actually operating will hopefully lead to better outcomes for everyone. Mm -hmm. Is there a way that... Um... <laughs> Is there a way that you see now that you've been in the legislature for a little over a year, is there a way that you see very much now from the inside that there needs to be sort of a real rethinking of the way that policies and budgets are made to bring in that perspective? You know, as far as I can tell at the state level, at the city level, I'm, I don't I don't cover the national government, the federal level, so I'm not really uh, much of an expert about how things work there. Um, but you know, for a lot of what I can tell on the state level, the city level, is that a lot of the way that policy and budgets are made are not necessarily data driven, let's just put it that way, and are not necessarily carefully crafted based on what does the data show us? Uh, how do we measure outcomes? Are we at all giving an indication to New Yorkers as we make this policy that this amount of investment should yield this amount of result. And we know this because of this extensive research. We don't get a lot of that. We get some of that, uh, but we don't, but, and maybe, so maybe I'm capturing it one way, but is there a way that now that you're in the inside, you've seen how things work and don't work in state government specifically that you're trying to get your colleagues to think differently or even internally in the assembly and, and listeners, of course, many know this, but it's worth reminding so much of what happens is staff driven, right? There's a central staff, Absolutely. there are uh, legislators all have their own staffs and those and those folks are really, really important in terms of how uh, legislation gets written, uh, how budgets are allocated. So is there are there some thoughts you have about the way state government works, maybe about the way the assembly specifically works or the legislature um, that that relate to sort of shifting some of this perspective and how policies and budgets are are done? It's a great question. And I would actually say, I'd have an optimistic take on this, which is I think on the inside, there actually is a lot more data than people will will realize. Uh, it's tough to tweet out a study, you know, or, or tweet out good data. And so maybe in what gets filtered out, especially to those who aren't as, as rabid listeners of your podcast as I am, uh, you know, maybe the pieces that they pick up feel uh, uninformed by data. Uh, but on the inside, I mean, we we have fairly thick reports available to us um, on what certain policies may or may not do. But part of building a uh, data informed government is less about the tech and what's available and also and more about just building trust. You know, I interact with data scientists and experts all the time. I actually referenced some in my state of the district where I emailed the firm and they were like, oh, you actually understand like data, like do you want it in a CSV or shape files? Like I've never asked a legislator this. Um, but, but part of it is being comfortable with legislators enough to say, hey, here are the caveats and here's what we're unsure about. There's always pieces in data where you're making assumptions and caveats. And can you build relationships with experts where they can say, this is what we know and what we're sure about. This is what we're less sure about, but is informing our decisions. Um, or are you going to take this caveat or something that's less sure and tweet that out? And then all of a sudden, that's some controversial story. And the more that we can kind of show, hey, we want to deal with the ambiguity. We want to deal with the uncertainty because that will let us make better decisions. Um, the more that trust is built between legislators and experts, the better everyone will be. Interesting. 
Can you give us an example of something where this is, you know, come up for you or you focused in on this? Um, we're going to get to several examples of the of the specifics of the work that you've been doing and are going to be doing and, and legislation that you're working on. Um, and so maybe it's one of those things that's sort of top of the agenda here for us to discuss, which includes judicial reform and artificial intelligence opportunities and regulations and more. But anything specific where some of this type of thinking and your background has most come into play so far in your year or so in the legislature? Uh, it's a great question. I think a lot of what we'll see in the budget hearings coming up relate to that. And when we're engaging with agencies, when you say, you know, okay, here's the published numbers and here's what you're willing to talk about, but like, let's talk about places that might be trickier. You know, I, I'm in conversation right now with the MTA, for example, where they have a a very comprehensive cost containment study, um, which I, I found to be quite compelling. But then I've asked some follow-ups of, wait, what did this look like in years past? What did it look like here? And being able to say, well, we're not exactly sure. Here's the estimate. Here's where we're moving. I think will lead to better conversations about how we oversee the MTA. So um, it's being able to have those conversations, especially with agencies and places where they're unsure that that can move us forward. Before we get into specifics very soon about some of this, the topics you've been taking on. Um, one more on this front. Um, you know, this is something I know you talked about in your campaign and and something you've been working on in government, but the other thing that sort of comes up a lot and I, when I talk to people like experts at the Citizens Budget Commission or other places, you know, this is, the, this is the type of thing that comes up as well when we talk about sort of how government decisions are made and how governments run and what data is being used. And sort of wanted to ask your perspective or what you've seen or what you're trying to do around this issue where so much of government often talks about sort of um, like inputs or or sort of services offered or the number of constituents that have come to government with some issue, but not always about the sort of results and the outcomes uh, piece. And and so how how is that sort of uh, come into your work? What's your how's you you know how are you thinking about shifting how government works on this front? Again, I know you're a first term assembly member, one of 150 in the assembly, 213 in the legislature. So you can't come in and sort of you know shift how government uh, does all this, and especially not you know quote unquote overnight here, but. Um, you know, that often seems like this challenge. So for example, you know, I look a lot at things like the mayor's management report and the mayor's management report you has so many data metrics, but not enough of them are about, are about results. A lot of it's about sort of inputs and, and, uh, you know, sort of functions that the government, uh, is doing, but not necessarily about sort of outcomes. And mayor Adams, to his credit, has talked about shifting this in, in city government, results have been mixed, obviously, on some of that. But how, how are you thinking about um, that and how how there's ways to sort of shift how state government uh, thinks about that? It's demanding the right metrics. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to measure inputs uh, than it is to measure outputs. And so inputs can give a good sense of, of where we're going, but uh, often outputs require survey data or require, you know, a, a follow-up 
interview or analysis or deeper bits. And so we need to actually budget for getting those right results to inform how we're spending. And we don't always do that. But it's things like the Department of Transportation's, you know, transportation survey that can actually tell us a lot more than individual traffic tickets can. It's aspects such as looking at, you know, the overall um, rental landscape that can tell us more maybe than starts and stops of apartments. Um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about uh, kind of judicial reform, but looking at how long trials take and what the ultimate adjudication of cases are might tell us more than the total number of arrest, arrests going into the system. Let's get into judicial reform. This has been a major focus for you in your first year and now into your second year, sort of phases of looking at this. Um, basically, the key piece that this comes down to is being able to add more judges throughout New York State, including in New York City. And there's different laws and rules at play for different uh, jurisdictions and different levels. And I'll let you explain that in a second. Um, and you can say more about this as well. But I'll also explain to folks listening that part of the issue here is backlogs in the court. And one of the things that, you know, I've said from time to time on this podcast and elsewhere that, you know, there's been all this discussion over the last several years before COVID and then certainly through COVID and the and the crime spike that has occurred, which thankfully we're seeing some, you know, abating of, um, you know, but still some real challenges around public safety and crime in a number of areas. But but all this discussion, there's so much conversation about bail reform and discovery reform and, and a number of other things. And sometimes Mayor Bill de Blasio would, would do this very often, and Governor Hochul's talked about this a little, and only sometimes would people say, well, what's actually going on with the functioning of the courts? And a lot of questions around case backlogs, about a lack of, of sort of speedy uh, trial, but also just, you know, it's not all, many, many cases are not going to trial, um, but speedy pro pro proceedings. Uh, it goes beyond that even to questions around whether judges were actually executing some of the laws that were passed. I don't know if we need to get you know fully into that. There's been debate over whether uh, you know there should be mandated trainings around all these changes to the bail law. You know that comes into play here. Uh, but before I get too broad, say a little bit about the work you've been focused on on judicial reform, uh, the the issue you're trying to tackle, what you've accomplished so far, and what the next phase is here. Yeah, judicial reform is a is a very big topic and a lot of different places we could go with it. But but my focus for this year and my top priority uh, across my entire legislative portfolio is enabling there to be more ju judges. So our trials are crazy backlogged. Uh, that backlog was growing before the pandemic. It really spiked during it. Um, 2023, we actually had slightly good news. It was the first year since the, the pandemic where the number of cases closed exceeded those uh, that were open. So we were slightly working off the debt, but we have a huge debt uh, to go through in order to give people a fair trial. And the good news is that in this past legislative session, in my first, uh, I was able to author a bill with uh, Senator Hoyleman Siegel that created 20 new judges throughout New York State in order to reduce the backlog. But we couldn't create any state Supreme Court judges, and we can talk about the different levels in a sec, but we couldn't create any state Supreme Court judges in Manhattan, in the Bronx, or in Staten Island because there is a limit in the New York State Constitution on the total number of judges per jurisdiction based on population that was put there originally in 1925, which for those counting at home is the Coolidge administration. Uh, and that has- Coming up on the 100 year anniversary soon, yeah. 
Yes, I, and I want to get rid of it on the 100-year anniversary. That's the goal. Um, uh, because it just delays trials, it delays justice, it raises the cost for anyone who's interacting with the court system. Uh, and we know that justice delayed is justice denied. So keep going. Say a little bit. Well, first first of all, you, you were able to accomplish something on this front already. The governor signed yep. one of your bills into law. So say a little bit more about that and then say – the next phase, as you as you mentioned, is getting rid of this cap uh, you, you're targeting next year in 2025 because this is a constitutional amendment. So say a little bit more about sort of what you're where what you were able to do already, and then what this next phase must include in order to remove the cap, and then what happens if you're if you're successful in that effort. Absolutely. And is so anyone against removing the cap? By the way. Uh, if they are, they're quiet about it. Um, but uh, I, we haven't heard much opposition. Uh, uh-huh. What we do hear occasionally is, you know, judges are expensive. Is that the best use of state money? And to which I say that is a great conversation to have once we remove this artificial cap, right? First, we need to enable us to have the conversation about whether there can be more judges. Uh, and as long as there's a constitutional limit, we can't even have that conversation first. But no, largely most people are in support. It's just a constitutional amendment, which the process for for listeners at home is it has to pass the legislature, both houses. Then there has to be an election. Then it has to pass the legislature again, and then it can be placed on the ballot. So the soonest this could be on the ballot would be 2025, more likely 2026. We like to put it in times where there's more voter turnout, so more people can can be involved. Uh, but often ballot initiatives fail. Often these amendments fail. And so it's important that everyone understands how much this affects your day-to-day, how much this affects just the functioning of government uh, and why it's so important to su- why it's so important to support this reform. And you were able to add some judges, including in parts of New York City. I mean, maybe there's a yeah. super so the, complicated the, history to all this as to why Manhattan is different than other boroughs and, and Staten Island and the Bronx. And you were able to add some judges for Queens and Brooklyn. But um, it's obviously like many things uh, that have uh, been added to government regulations over the years it seems extra complicated. Well, there's a deep long history of how the New York court system has come to be. And I actually think it'd be a great idea for an event for New York law school. Right. Yes, cover that far beyond even what I what I know about it. But the short version is that there's many different courts within New York. I think the most any other state has is like three or five. You know, you have criminal, civil and appellate, maybe a few others here. Uh, and New York has 10, 11, 12 different courts. Um, and so for 10 of them, uh, 10 of the trial courts, there's no limit on the number of judges in the Constitution. The number of judges is left to the legislature to decide how to keep the court system functioning. Um, And not to get too far afield, but you have criminal court, you have civil court, you have individual village courts, you have the Court of Claims, which is against New York State, you have family court, you have housing court, you know, these quickly grow. But Mm -hmm. uh, what we're focused on here is the state Supreme Court, which is not the highest court in New York State. That's the Court of Appeals. Uh, fun fact for your 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 uh, colleagues right, in the workplace right. today. Ask them the yeah. highest uh, court in New York State. <laughs> the state Supreme Court is it handles some appeals, but it's mostly a trial court. Um, and so it's where felonies go through. It's where divorces go through. There's criminal. There's civil, etc. And um, that is the place, the one trial level court in New York State that has a limit on the total number of judges. Um, And so that's the place where we're saying, why are we treating this differently? Why are we uh, uh, delaying our trials? 
Manhattan has actually been at the limit for decades. So it's it's not by borough, it's by judicial district, but every borough in New York City is its own judicial district. And so Manhattan has been at the limit for many, many years. Uh, the Bronx and Staten Island reached the limit in uh, two years ago. Uh, and Queens and Brooklyn are coming up close behind. So what I was able to do with Senator Hoyland Siegel was add some family court judges, some civil judges, some criminal judges, and some state Supreme Court judges in Brooklyn and Queens and one upstate, uh, but we couldn't in the other three boroughs. Mm -hmm. And do you have, going back to the other part of our conversation so far, do you have any sort of data to offer people in terms of, um, is there a way to say, uh, you know, for every Supreme Court judge you add, you know, you could decrease the case uh, backlog by X percent or anything like that? Do you have any sort of sense for people as to how impactful it can be to sort of increase the number of, of judges? I'm glad you asked. And that's analysis we're, we're doing actively. Um, the version of this that I like to tell is that Rikers, the New York City jail, which again, 85% of the people held there are waiting trial, right? They haven't yet been convicted. That's the general definition of a, a jail versus a prison. Um, so Rikers, which is a New York City jail, has the longest average length of stay of any jail in the country, which is not exactly the same as saying we have the most backlog court system, but it's right. pretty darn close. Um, and you look at the cost of housing someone in Rikers, it costs more than it does to send them to Harvard. So yes, judges are expensive, but if we can speed up trials, uh, if we can get rid of some of the delays that we're seeing in scheduling your next court date, because we only have so many judges that can hear cases, in the long run, that might even save money. That might even pay for sure. itself. Again, that's not the point. The point is we need faster trials to, to get real justice, but right. there's real savings that you can have by speeding up the trials that we're seeing. I mean, there's a whole lot of ways that you're getting at that, you know, people's constitutional rights are are not being upheld or respected. I mean, there's all sorts of issues with um, with speedy trial uh, and also you know, all, all sorts of ways in which there's challenges, uh, people not getting to their not getting to court. Um, but we won't get into go to get into all that. Um, Although, if I can, yeah. I'd love to just kind of how Please. how this came to me a little bit was during the campaign hearing people from a criminal justice reform perspective talking about how long people were languishing in Rikers, and then people from a public safety perspective saying, wait, someone's arrested, and then they're out awaiting trial, and they commit another crime? Like, how is that possible? And realizing that in both cases, the problem was that trials were taking way too long, right? Ultimately, everyone wants a trial. We want a fair adjudication of what the, the uh, alleged crime is. Uh, but when you delay that, that hurts safety and that hurts uh, the reform efforts. And so I was advocating we need more judges, we need more judges. And through the process, you know, when you get to an idea that seems common sense and everyone's for it, and it hasn't happened, there's probably a reason. Uh, and so eventually, uh, it was actually my predecessor, Dan Court, that pointed out to me, hey, the reason it hasn't happened is it's in the state constitution. Uh, and that became the target of what we had to change. Hmm. Anything else you want to touch on on judicial reform before I move on? Uh, no, I think, I think we've covered it. So in terms of the process, though, on removing the cap uh, that you spoke of, um, you're looking to have that bill passed and uh, get it passed two straight um, uh, classes of the state legislature, and then you're eyeing it to be on the ballot for voters potentially in 2026. That's yeah, it could be 2025, right? That's a broader conversation. Mm -hmm. But I think as we shift more and more elections to even years, mm -hmm. probably looking at 26. Um, okay. 
But the key thing is that we have to pass it this year because if not, that's a two-year delay. Right. This to- is the second year of this class. So right. you got to get it exactly. in in this class. Yeah. Okay. So that's exactly. something interesting hey, to wait, watch there's actually, There actually is another thing that I would say on this. Um, you asked earlier about, um, you know, is there any opposition to this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just said there isn't. But but I think I should highlight how much support there is, which is <laughs> we have Republican co-sponsors on this. Uh, the business community is behind it. The New York City Bar Association has made it their top legislative priority for this session. Um, we have prosecutors supporting it. We have defenders organizations supporting it. Uh, and the governor highlighted it in the state of the state and actually made this amendment part of her budget bill. She submitted an exact copy of the amendment as one of the things she wants to get done in the budget process. So we have a really broad coalition of support. Um, and one of the reasons I'm so happy to be talking to you is the last hurdle is making sure the public's aware of it and ready to vote for it. And that's why we're just trying to get the knowledge out there. All right. And this is the No Cap Act, uh, and it's related to uh, lifting the cap on Supreme Court justices in Manhattan and elsewhere. Um, All right. So one of the other issues that I mentioned that you're focused on is what to do uh, from a legislative perspective and also, you know, related to the state budget allocations. And the governor's got a proposal about artificial intelligence consortium uh, about A.I., uh, say a little bit about what your main focus is there. Are you m- more focused on sort of the opportunities that AI uh, allows and how to best sort of harness those, but also encourage development? Or are you a little more concerned about sort of runaway AI and how to sort of rein it in and regulate it? Uh, and and are you working on things on sort of both fronts? And, and where do you see everything sort of coinciding here from a legislative perspective so that New York can do smart regulation here, um, you know, while also being sort of obviously sensitive to economic opportunity, opportunity across a variety of sectors and industries. Um, How are you sort of thinking about your role as a legislator here with your computer science background and how to help the state chart a path forward here on, on artificial intelligence? The answer to whether we should be excited or fearful of AI is yes. The bounds of what's possible with AI are as wide as any technology we've ever invented. Um, The only thing that comes close is thinking about nuclear power, right? When when we were first investigating splitting the atom, uh, the bounds of possibilities were unlimited, clean energy for all with no waste through fusion and extinction through nuclear bombs, right? That was the bounds of that technology. AI is as wide, if not wider. And so we need to be fearful of what could potentially happen if we don't regulate it the right way. And we need to be jumping ahead with the places where it can directly help and revolutionize both the economy and government services. So it's a yes and approach to this. The other bit that people miss with AI is that this is going to move faster than any technology before, not only because of all of the money that's being invested in it, but because it can speed up its own research. Uh, One of the things that generative AI is best at is coding. Uh, and it's not yet coding itself. We haven't reached the singularity for any of sci-fi fans, but it, we could get there. Um, as just one example, uh, NVIDIA, the maker of the chips that are used to actually power AI research, recently took all of their corporate knowledge, so all of the bug reports, all of their schematics for chips, and put that into an AI system to help develop new chips and speed it up even faster. So 
Government isn't always known for moving quickly, uh, but this is one of those issues that we're going to have to speed up if we want to address it correctly. So to get into some of the specifics of that, while much of the regulation will have to happen at the federal level, as it should, it shouldn't necessarily be a patchwork of 50 states, the role for the state and local government is going to be the places where we're already regulating things in the state and local government, but AI is starting to touch that. So one example of that is campaigns. Uh, the federal government leaves it up to states to uh, regulate their own elections. Um, and so while there's a bill at the federal level to require more disclosure of AI, that would only apply to congressional campaigns or presidential campaigns. It wouldn't apply to state or local ones. So I introduced a bill last session to require that if you use generative AI to make a deep fake video or manipulate someone's image or fake their voice. Um, any of those uses would require a disclosure that that campaign ad or material was made with AI. Um, and that's one of my top priorities to get through this year as well. But on the flip, oh, go ahead. No, just quickly on that, you know, I noticed that bill, um, which, you know, makes a lot of sense to me, at least to have a disclosure there. Uh, I'm not, you know, I, I I have questions about whether campaigns, you know, should sort of be allowed to use, uh, you know, faked voices, videos, et cetera. But that is the world we're living in. I don't know. There's some interesting questions there about whether it should be allowed or it should have to have a disclaimer. But um, and and feel free to, you know, give your give your thoughts on why, you know, regulate it with the disclaimer versus uh, harsher regulations. I mean, um, I, I think you start with a disclaimer because you, it's tricky First Amendment stuff when you start saying campaigns especially can do this or can't do this. And then what exactly is that generative AI? You know, if I use Photoshop to touch up an image, when do you just go? Mm -hmm. So starting with it, let's just get the information out there. Let's see how it's being used. And that doesn't need to be our last word on the subject. But mm -hmm. uh, let's not let this keep going without more knowledge about it. Good point. Um, the second piece of that is what are we doing about regulating government use? Um, you know, this popped up. Mayor Adams was apparently doing some government robocalls where they were putting his voice into other languages and not disclosing that this was AI generated, that it sounded like Mayor Adams was speaking in a variety of tongues to his constituents. And all of a sudden he had learned everybody's languages. Um, what, what are we doing about regulating government use of AI? Yeah, and I uh, maybe it's a minority view, but I actually think doing creative things like robocalls in different languages is a good use of AI with the caveat that there should be a disclaimer at the start that that's how it was generated. But mm -hmm. I thought that was a creative way to reach out to people in their own language, just, you know, be transparent about what exactly is happening. Um, how government uses AI will be more and more part of the conversation. So ITS, uh, the, the state agency responsible for IT, put out um, a one- guideline for the state use of AI last week, um, which I'm sure will be reformed over time, but really focuses on where AI is making a decision that was previously made by a human. Those are the places to focus on. Uh, and it, it's more specific than just making a decision because, you know, your spam filter is making decisions about what to put in spam, what to put in your inbox. And that's uh, uh, a early form of AI. And there's cyber issues that are making decisions. So it's not just about decisions, but it's decisions that will impact human lives or that were previously made by a human. You know, those are the places where we should be really careful that the systems are acting in the ways that we expect and deciding the way that a human would um, ahead of time or, or in some cases even better than a human would. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll learn over time as that develops. Uh, but certainly it shouldn't be a 
ban all of AI use in government, nor should it be a anything that's faster is good, right? When government deals with really serious issues and when we're having that, we need to have a higher scale of audit on these systems. Mm -hmm. Give me one thing that you're particularly concerned about with the use of AI, whether it's public sector or private sector, um, you know, what's something that state government should really be taking a careful look at? It could be more than one, but um, I wanna make sure we get to some other things here in our time together. Um, and what's one thing where you see just a vast amount of opportunity? Um, so one one sort of big concern and one area, um, and, and as part of the, the second part of that, maybe your thoughts on this AI, uh, Empire AI consortium that the governor is proposing, public-private partnership, um, you know, a lot of sort of seemingly exciting opportunity there to harness both research and development and regulation from a consortium of research institutions, government, private sector there. Very interesting proposal she's put out. Um, but one big area of concern related to artificial intelligence, one very promising area perhaps, and what you make of the governor's proposal. Um, I'm absolutely not going to follow your instructions and going <laughs> to lift more than one for both. But um, no, it's a really exciting field, right? When you think about the promise of AI, it's going to diagnose diseases and cure diseases in a way that we haven't seen before, right? Being able to look at the protein folding that it's been able to do, it's going to create incredible economic opportunity. I was actually going to use Empire AI as one of the positive things. I mean, there's a lot of the details to be worked out, um, but it's, you know, I, I think it's fair to say it's based on a program from Massachusetts a few years ago where the universities there realized they were paying a lot of money for compute, not necessarily AI research, but just normal data center compute. Uh, and so they came together to form a consortium to build a large data center for the universities, put it right next to the river and powered it by hydropower. So it was green energy and were able to reduce the cost of doing their research by a massive portion. Massachusetts put in a little money at the start to get it seated, uh, as did private philanthropists, but now it largely runs itself. And the Empire AI initiative is following that model. The state's gonna put in a little money at the start, there's private philanthropists, but then universities are gonna have access not just to broad compute, but to GPUs, which are the specific type of chip that's needed for AI research. I'm really bullish on that, A, because I think it'll allow more AI safety research how we can make sure that these systems are doing what we want, that they're aligned with human interests and that we have the right checks and understanding of them, uh, which is research that universities are, are really leading in. Um, there's less incentive perhaps for parts of the private sector to do that, but it'll also be really good for the economy, for jobs, because if the universities can recruit the best AI researchers to New York State, well, then that ends up spinning off new companies that ends up spin building the whole ecosystem around New York. So I think that's a really good initiative if we can if we can land it correctly. Um, and then on the concern side, right, these new AI platforms, generative AI are known to hallucinate is the word, right? They'll maybe make up facts. And when you start talking about government chatbots, well, perhaps there's a lot there to speed up interacting with the government. You have to be really worried about it giving false information to a citizen that then relies upon it. Um, but I do, as someone who understands AI and has worked in AI and is generally bullish on AI, I do want people to take the downside risk fairly seriously. And I, I tell a story that is out there in the public, but but perhaps people aren't aware of, which was when OpenAI was first testing uh, GPT-4 and aligning it before they did a public release of it, they wanted to see how 
much it would perhaps break out of the bounds that were put out there. Mm -hmm. And they um, uh, set it to complete a task and it realized that it couldn't do it. Uh, it reached a captcha in the like online form, right? The, are you a robot? Prove you're not a robot bit. And so what it did was it created a task rabbit uh, account and then created a task to help with captchas. And a human signed up, took the job, and actually chatted with OpenAI and said, oh, you're not a robot, are you? Ha ha. And wow. ChatGPT responded and said, oh, no, I just have a visual impairment. Like, thank you for helping. That's scary. Uh, that level of being to engage with humans yeah. Yeah. is a tricky, tricky thing. And, and they disclosed that. They did the right thing. They made changes. But we're in the very early days of what these programs can do. And so we absolutely need to be careful when we, especially when we're unleashing these, connecting to the internet, connecting to, to data systems. There's a lot of safety work that still needs to be done. Mm. A lot more to discuss there down the line, but in our last few minutes here, I do want to hit on the issue of housing because obviously it's the top crisis uh, facing New York and New York City. It's something um, that regular listeners of the show know I've been spending a lot of uh, time and conversation on here because it's so important and because there's so many pieces to it and so much going on politically around it. Um, so say a little bit about your top priorities on the housing front. You represent a very dense uh, Manhattan East Side district. Uh, this is, you know, uh, a very built environment, but also an area of the city where people do want to see some more housing added. Um, you've got a lot of different sort of constituencies to balance. Uh, you also have uh, the question of not only new building and how big those new buildings can be and whether there's affordable housing involved, but you also have the issue of what to do about uh, rent regulated housing and tenants and estimates vary as to how many rent regulated units are sort of currently offline for a variety of reasons. And the questions about sort of bringing some state investment into those or allowing for private investment um, that would have to seemingly correspond with some sort of rent uh, correction of some sort as uh, the sort of uh, advocates for rent-stabilized building owners and managers are sort of putting forward their own proposals. Um, but in terms of especially focusing in on your district, Assembly District 73 here, what are the top housing priorities that you have? And I know you have a little bit of legislation to also mention on this front. Yeah, the 73rd is a very dense district. We have 140,000 people in about a square mile. Actually, my neighboring assembly member, Rebecca Seawright, the 76th, is about half a square mile, and it is the densest legislative district in the country, not just the state. Um, so, you know, where I represent an area on the east side and, and neighboring places that are um, already very built up and yet still need more housing. Right. The only way to house all of the people that want to be New Yorkers is to make sure that we're building new housing. And there's a lot of ways that have been discussed on this podcast and others to do that. Um, I think we need a new uh, tax break for affordable housing, especially tied to labor standards that could generate more of the housing that we need. We certainly need to look at office conversions. Uh, that's particularly pertinent in my district, uh, where an independent design firm has found 135 offices that are good candidates for potential conversion. Um, 
often they're not allowed to because we allowed with the FAR cap, you could build taller for commercial than you could for housing. And so there's buildings that have more floor space for commercial than is legally allowed to be turned into housing. That feels like an obvious change we should make to allow those that want to uh, turn it into housing to do that. Um, I'm very much on the pro housing and build more side. And and one piece that's often missed, and I highlight highlighted in my state of the district, is it's really the silver bullet for solving budget issues. Because when you, if you don't want to raise taxes and you don't want to cut services, then your only option is to expand the tax base. And the way to expand the tax base is to have more New Yorkers. When you build housing, you're creating construction jobs. You're creating demand for businesses, and those businesses will pay taxes. When the units themselves are sold, that is taxed. And of course, the income of the residents that live in those buildings are taxed. And so if you're worried about a cut in services or you're worried about your taxes going up, I implore you to join the fight for more housing. Uh, but anytime you talk about wanting more housing, uh, inevitably people will say, well, we have some vacant units and we have some vacant land. And I don't think that's enough to solve the problem. But given that this is an existential crisis, as you mentioned, we should be looking at everything that can help the problem. And so in the state of the district yesterday, I talked about two new proposals, uh, you know, not to say that they are the only thing to do here or the most important thing to do here, but I think coming from an angle that hasn't been seen before. Um, and one is a cap and dividend on property taxes. And so basically saying if you are a normal resident in your unit or you're doing active repairs in order to make it habitable, we're going to give you a little break on your property taxes. Hopefully that reduces your costs. Hopefully that reduces uh, rents uh, because of the pressure on landlords. But the way we're going to pay for that is by putting a little bit of surcharge on warehouse units or on vacant units or ones where there's really no effort in order to bring it out to the public and allow people to live there for at least six months out of the year. Now, I think most people would agree with that. For 90% of people, that's reducing their fees. But there is the subset, which you alluded to, of potentially rent-regulated apartments that are in need of so much repair that there's no way they could raise the rent under the law enough to actually cover the cost of those renovations. And so if we're putting standards on apartments, and, and again, these are usually good standards. It's uh, asbestos uh, uh, abatement or lead abatement or you know things that are needed to make it livable. But still, if those standards are coming from New York City or Albany, I think it's reasonable for us to put a little bit of money into funding those repairs. I was proud to work with Assemblymember Ed Bronstein this year to pass a new version of the J-51 program that provided tax breaks for people to do necessary repairs. Um, but I want to go even further in saying if this is a rent-regulated unit and it's truly you need to do repairs to get it up to code, the government should put a bunch of money in to help support that. And the way I've come up to pay for that is actually looking at how we undertax vacant land. You know, I grew up in New York City and it was always shocking to me that there was any vacant land in New York City. Um, it just makes no sense. And it turns out the reason that some of that is, is we horribly undertax it. Uh, no property in New York is actually taxed at its market value. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying we should massively raise those taxes, but it is egregious when you look at vacant land that we are so undertaxing it. If we just taxed holes in the ground in New York City at the market value for a hole in the ground. Not what it'll be once it's built up, not its potential, just what it would sell for on the open market today. That would raise an extra $800 million a year for New York City. 
Um, now, maybe we don't go the full way. Maybe we look at housing versus commercial. There's details to be worked out there, but that's a that's a subsidy to not build that makes no sense. And so if we can take some of that potential revenue, put that towards funding repairs for rent-regulated apartments, maybe we can induce a little more building on vacant land and get more of those vacant units back online. Is that something that that, you know, the the different groups uh, that re represent the rent stabilized building owners and operators, are they on board with this proposal? Because what I've heard mostly from them and I haven't checked in on their full agenda lately, and I do want to have an episode of the show uh, sometime in the coming months on this issue. But um, last time I, I sort of heard from them, their main proposal was more allow the sort of their market you know they, their owners to repair invest their own money but allow for a rent reset of those units and you're coming in with something that seems very different which is government subsidy of the repairs i assume to then keep the rent especially low in the rent regulated system yeah, I'm in active conversations with a lot of these groups, and they're not a monolith, um, especially the ones that represent just the owners of old stock are, are very supportive, those that own vacant land less so. Um, but uh, these are active conversations, and I find often the best policies come from maybe everyone came in with an original idea of what they thought was possible, and then they hit reality, and they see that well, there's not many people in Albany that want to raise rents a huge amount. So let's find a way that can actually ensure that our housing stock is cared for, that, you know, the owners do have a reason to invest in New York City housing. And yet we are providing affordable housing to a vast majority of New Yorkers. Uh, last two questions for you and appreciate all the time. Some of them are Alex Boris, a Manhattan Democrat. Uh, thanks for for chatting about some of your top priorities and and here on this housing issue, of course, uh, you know, this massive issue facing New York City and state and something that's been the focus of a lot of attention and continues to be the focus of a lot of discussion and, and negotiation in Albany with the city doing a lot of its own things. From your perspective, your first year in Albany, there were so many of these discussions on housing policy and then so little got done. You did mention J51 replacement. That was one of the things that, that did get done on the housing front. Um, but is there anything from your perspective that's sort of the linchpin to getting some sort of grand bargain done here that includes, you know, people get stuck on some of the big uh, name items, good cause eviction protections, uh, replacement for the 421A a tax break for for development of rental units that includes some affordable units. Um, but there's so many other pieces to the puzzle here that could be part of a big legislative package. Um, is there anything that you consider to be the key perspective that legislators need to have? Is there any reason uh, seemingly that the assembly has been sort of a little bit, uh, I would say, sort of behind the Senate on sort of coming around to doing an almost all of the above approach? Um, what's sort of the what's sort of the linchpin to really getting something significant done this year? Well, first to defend my assembly colleagues. I mean, the assembly and the Senate came together at the end of session last year with a, a fairly comprehensive package. Um, obviously, there were some differences with the governor there, and in Albany, it takes three to tango, not two, which is why it's such an awkward dance. But um, I, we've been putting forward our own proposals as well. Obviously, I don't think anyone would say that our job is done. We haven't passed something big. But I think if there's one perspective to share, it's that 
it doesn't necessarily have to be one big package, right? And regardless of what that package includes, that's not going to be the end of what we do in housing. There's going to be additional steps needed. And I worry that we're waiting so long to pass the grand bargain that we miss a bunch of wins along the way. And people are struggling now. People are getting evicted now. People can't find a place to live now. And so um, I always tense up a little bit when I hear legislators say, I'm not going to vote for anything in this whole sector unless it includes A, and someone else says not unless it includes B, and someone else not includes C. You know, I think you can evaluate proposals separately. And I realize why compromise is important and why we might need to group a few of these together in order to get a majority on any of them. So if a grand bargain is what gets it done, great. If passing individual things is what gets it done, great. But um, we need to pass things today. And so I know everyone's bringing that urgency, and I hope we show that same urgency when it comes to finding you know, compromise or compromises to actually make progress for New Yorkers. Just real quickly, because it's such an issue in your district, on the office conversions, are you someone who believes there should be not only sort of state permission as you got out to allow whatever office conversions to housing can happen? Are you someone who wants to add into that a, a tax incentive at the state level to ensure some level of affordability in those conversions? Or would you rather sort of just open things up and see what the market produces on those conversions? Yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm for a two-track system with that, uh, right? Office conversions are really difficult financially. Probably only about 3% of offices could actually make it work. And so if we can expand that 3% with an affordability provision, great. Uh, if the only way to make it work is as of right, great. That's housing that we didn't have before. So I want more housing. I want it at all levels. Uh, yes, and when it comes to that. All right, we'll leave it there. A lot more we could get into, but you've been generous with your time. Assemblymember Alex Boris is a Democrat in his first term in the New York State Legislature, representing the 73rd Assembly District on the east side of Manhattan. Thank you for the time. Uh, let's stay in touch and see what develops this uh, this session here on a number of the things we've discussed and much more. But uh, but thanks for taking the time to discuss these issues. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time and thanks for your great coverage on all these issues. Mm -hmm.